well, those of you who've been here over the last few weeks uh, will know that uh, we're going through uh, a short series in uh, the book of Titus, and uh, we'll do a, a quick uh, revision session, uh, catch up at the, uh, at the start, and then we're going to look particularly um, at uh, Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Uh, <clears throat> Titus, uh, as uh, we know, um, was written by uh, Paul um, to one of his close friends and um, compatriots, uh, Titus. He'd known him for, we know, probably about 14, 15 years at least by the, the time that this letter was written. Uh, we know that the letter was written probably um, certainly between 62, 67 AD. Um, and we know that um, it, was, it was written to Titus, who Paul had left um, on Crete, which is, as we know, uh, the island down here, in the, um, uh, sort of where the Aegean meets the Mediterranean. And uh, Paul himself at this time was at Nicopolis, um, which is that one there. It's difficult to see. It's not particularly well projecting, but but uh, he's uh, about a week's journey away, and uh, so sends sends the letter. And it would have taken about a week to get down to um, Titus in Crete. And uh, if Titus replied, which I suspect he may well have done, then uh, it would have taken a week to get back. Um, and the, the whole point of the letter is that Titus has gone with a with a mission. He's gone with a job to do. And that's to appoint elders into every uh, church in every town uh, in Crete uh, to uh, give a structure uh, for the for the church, and in particular uh, to strengthen the church in the face of uh, some uh, heretical teaching, some teaching that was moving away from uh, the gospel. And that uh, that's the context. Um, we also know, because we talked about this before, um, that the. Uh, there's a sort of a big theme going on uh, theologically in uh, in the book. Um, Paul is talking very much about uh, God's grace, uh, God's um, God's love and mercy, um, and how that appears, um, and how uh, it produces in us a, a faith response, um, and that faith must be uh, really well grounded. Uh, that it must be, uh, it must be, you know, a correct faith, but that it also must lead to and should lead to a response in how we behave, how we speak, how we act. So grace produces faith, which leads to deeds, which is uh, the appropriate response to that grace, that mercy that we first received. And we're going to talk about that more today because it comes through very clearly in the in the four verses that we're going to look at. Um, and so uh, the, the, the verses that we're particularly looking at, as I said, uh, are um, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Um, and uh, I want to talk first about uh, the two appearances of uh, grace, uh, or the two appearances of, of God uh, that um, Paul talks about to Titus in these two verses. So in verse um, 11, uh, it says, The grace of God has appeared. So there's an appearance. Something has appeared and it's the grace of God. And of course it's appeared in Jesus, um, most notably on the cross. But the grace of God has appeared. So that's the first appearance. And the second appearance 
uh, is in verse 13. Waiting, we are, uh, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God. So there's an appearance in, talked about in verse 11, which has already happened, that's the appearance of grace. And we are waiting for a second appearance, the appearance of glory. So those are the two appearances. We just If we can uh, first think about those two before we uh, move on a little bit. Um, the word used for appearance in both cases is epiphania, and we'll know that word because we talk about uh, epiphany. You know, we talk sometimes about we have an epiphany, and something appears to us, you know, in our, in our thoughts, in our dreams, something, an epiphany appears to us. And obviously we talk about uh, the epiphany when we talk about uh, Christmas as well. Um, Epiphany, uh, <clears throat> to the Greeks, um, was, uh, was, was the appearance of something which had previously been invisible. So something which was there, but that you couldn't see, um, has suddenly now appeared. So, for example, um, they would use it um, of the sun at daybreak. So I think, if I'm right, um, the way I've read the notes that I've, I've read, they would actually say, you know, they'd talk about epiphany and people, and they would just talk about it in those, so people would know they were talking about daybreak, so they just use it for, for daybreak. Um, they would also use it, for example, um, of, a, of an enemy emerging in an ambush. So, you know, they would use it, because the, the enemy had been there all the way along, but you didn't know, and then suddenly the enemy was there, so uh, it's, it's that kind of appearance. Or they also used it um, and this is obviously significant because Paul is using it in this sense, uh, as p- picked up on this sense. Also used it of a saving intervention of a god or gods in human affairs. So the god had always, or the gods had always been there, uh, and then suddenly you saw their impact in the way that they uh, behaved in human affairs. So they would use it in those terms, and that's very much um, how Paul is using it here. Uh, god is invisible. No one in that sense has ever seen God. But God has revealed himself in grace in Jesus and will reveal himself again at the end of time in glory. So there are two appearances of the invisible God. Um, And uh, I put down Acts 27 verse 20 there. It's the only time apparently in the New Testament when epiphany is used in the uh, sense of just something other than God appearing. Um, And it's uh, the storm that that, uh, Paul's in um, at the end of Acts and uh, uh, when Luke writes he says that um, the stars made no epiphany it was such a terrible storm that you even at night you couldn't see the stars so the stars you knew they were there but they weren't showing so there was no epiphany okay so that's Acts 27 verse 20 Um, and then there are the two appearances as we've said the appearance in grace in verse 11 and the appearance um, in glory at the end of time in verse 13 Um, and uh, Peter um, writes in uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 this because, and this, this explains to me in part at least why there are two appearances because you might say why two appearances why does God appear in one way in Jesus uh, in the cross and in his life and then again at the end of time well I think this explains it quite well uh, you'll know this verse very well it says uh, Peter writes the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some understand or count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there is there is an appearing of God in Jesus on the cross, 
that uh, God then gives us time to respond to because he's a merciful God. And if you're asking, well, why hasn't the second coming, the second appearance happened yet? Well, God uh, is not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that, in part, explains why there are two. Um, And also, of course, given that we are here now, the first appearance of uh, of God um, in, in Jesus makes God understandable to us with our limited human understanding at the moment. In other words, God appears in a, in, a, in a form that we can understand in Jesus. So we can look at Jesus and we can see things about God that we can understand because God uh, is acting in human form. And we can see some really, really important things about God understandably and, and clearly when we look at Jesus. And that's another reason for, Jesus, for God having appeared in Jesus. Um, as the first appearance. Okay, we're going to uh, look at these in a little bit um, more detail. So, um, the first appearance. Uh, the appearance of grace. I don't know if you ever watched um, the series, I don't know, I think it might have been Channel 4, I'm not sure. Was it Secret Millionaire? Did anybody ever watch it? Okay, good, good wallpaper TV. Um, went on for a long time, actually. I probably only watched two or three of them over the whole, you know, many years it was on. It was on for a long time. But, but basically, the conceit of the programme was that this uh, multi-millionaire, who you'd never heard of, because the programme wouldn't have worked otherwise, um, multi-millionaire you'd never heard of, um, would uh, go and live somewhere for a week. I think it was a week. Um, so they, they'd go and appear in a community they'd give themselves a must have been great fun gave themselves a false name um, <coughs> and, and they went and lived in a community and, uh, and, and got to know people and then at the end of the week they would reveal that they were actually a multi-millionaire and then they would give uh, money to the community based on what they found out during the week this sort of idea I think of, um, of, of, the, of the person who sort of uh, doesn't reveal entirely who they are is, is quite common in fiction as well. Um, I think I hope I get this right because I'm not an expert on um, Lord of the Rings, but I believe that Aragorn, the true-born king, is, uh, is is just at the start is just Strider, this uh, you know this itinerant. Is that my right about that? Yes, good. I'm looking at an expert. Um, so. So, so what can you tell about Aragorn when you look at Strider? Um, I suppose you can tell that he's a, you know, that he's a, that he's a warrior, that he's, that he's a, a noble man, uh, not a nobleman, but a noble man, yeah? uh, that he is, uh, you know, that he's, that he's compassionate, that he's, that he's kind, that, he's, uh, that he you know, has the best interests of people around him at heart. You can tell all of that. You're looking totally blank. Um, absolutely. But, you know, um, I might come to something you know in a minute. I'll, I've, I thought I'd go for two examples, you know, one that maybe some other people might know. Um, so anyway, they've got Strider and Aragorn and you've got, um, you know, got the, the true king, um, but, but you, can, you can see some of what the true king is like in Strider, but you can only see some of it. The other example I've got, you love this one, is Nanky Poo. Right now, who is a Gilbert and Sullivan expert? Oh, sorry. I, I don't know. I was, I was trying. I was trying. And I thought, well, you know, Lord of the Rings, Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, we're going two different places. Anyway, um, I've, got, I've got Gilbert and Sullivan. I am a bit of a Gilbert and Sullivan expert. 
Um, partly because my parents were mad keen on Gilbert Sullivan. Um, but also because I was in, uh, I was in the Mikado in school. And, and in, the, in the Mikado, um, the, the, the king's son, the king's son and heir, uh, disguises himself as a, as a, as a minstrel and, and goes around uh, playing um, and singing um, and meets, you know, meets the love of his life. Uh, through this, I won't tell you the rest of the story because it's totally and utterly ridiculous, as you know, <laughs> um, or some of you will know. Uh, but again, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. Um, he, uh, he, the, 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 you know, the king, if you like, or the king to be, uh, disguised himself as a as a minstrel. It's a well. It's a it's a common theme, um, and here we have the real story. So there's all these, you know, fictional equivalents, and, and in a way, it's not surprising because it's a it's a great story. But here we have the real story, the true story, the really important story, which is that God has done the same thing. God has revealed Himself in Jesus, and in particular, He's revealed Himself in grace. And there are there are three things that are, that I want to uh, pick out here from what what Paul says. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So first of all, um, when, uh, what does that grace look like? Well, first of all, um, humility. When, when Jesus came, he came in humility. Um, there's so many examples of that, but just in his birth, uh, you know, unmarried mother, um, shepherds, you know, outcasts of society were the first people to come and worship. Uh, when the Magi came, where did they look? They looked at they looked, went to Jerusalem. Look in the look at the palace. Go to the palace. Obviously, if there's a king being born. It will be in the capital city. It'll be in the palace. No, nope, not here. Um, well, where then? Well, you know, Bethlehem. You know, a sort of one horse town um, with you know and, and you know just an ordinary, apparently ordinary, ordinary family. Um, it did, you know, it, it just wasn't what they were expecting. Uh, and God comes in humility in an unexpected way. Um, but his life, um, you know, we could talk about so many things in Jesus' life, um, about, you know, how he lived such a simple life, and I, uh, obviously as an itinerant preacher um, towards the end of his life. Uh, just what you would not expect. But it tells us something really important, uh, that God was willing to come in humility and connect with us and be one of us, and uh, and understand us, and show something of himself through being in, in that way like us. But also, um, and this is what Paul is really emphasising, I think, God revealed in compassion. Um, and, uh, and and I was, um, I was reading uh, a book um, recently, or uh, actually, I'll, I'll be honest, I was reading an extract of a book, let's not... Let's not overdo it. I was reading an extract of a book. But I was reading an extract of a book um, by a guy called Paul Bloom. Um, and it's, a call, it's called Against Empathy. And the, the book is Paul Bloom saying that uh, empathy is actually uh, not a great thing in some ways. There are, there are, there are things about empathy which are great. So um, if we identify with somebody, we tend to be more generous towards them. So you'll see it with charities. They'll, you know, these days charities always sell you um, their charitable work through stories, 
through people. They don't give you statistics. You never get statistics. It's always through people and stories. Um, you know, meet Aisha. You know, who's you know, and, and you get a you get a story, and then you want to give because you you know something like that. So empathy, you know, makes us more generous. But the problem is, it will skew the way that we think. Um, and actually, he argues for what he calls compassion, which is a more intelligent way of helping people. Anyway, that's the extract of the book. But this idea of compassion, um, Jesus was empathetic, of course. He understood, absolutely he understood. And that's the whole, in a way, in a way that's the whole point of Jesus coming as a, as a man. He understood. But he was also very compassionate. Um, he was very, uh, you know, uh, intelligent and objective in, in, in the way that he helped people as well. And, and ultimately, Jesus died. What Paul Bloom says that if you're just empathetic, you will never do anything for people you don't know, really, I suppose. Well, look at Jesus on the cross. That's the ultimate uh, example of what Paul Bloom talks about when he talks about compassion. Jesus dies not just for the people um, that he knew. He dies for all people, even his enemies, on the cross. Um, and so we see, in Jesus' life, we see empathy and compassion. But on the cross, we see the ultimate uh, example of somebody dying for, uh, for even for enemies. So I've given some, uh, some references there. I won't go through them. Um, you can look them up if you want. Um, the, the ones in Matthew are of Jesus you know, being empathetic and therefore compassionate. Um, but that would be only part of the story. Jesus is actually compassionate in, in the full sense that he, he dies for people um, who are even his enemies. So Christ is, uh, is, reveals God in humility. He re- reveals God in compassion. But also, Paul says, that he brings salvation for all people. Um, and we see this in Galatians 3, verse 28, where uh, Paul is writing about the impact of, of the gospel. And he says that in the gospel, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The barriers come down. The barriers come down at the cross. Uh, Jesus died for Paul. Um, doesn't matter who you are. And that, when Paul was writing that, just, just as today, that was, that was incredibly radical. Um, Sarah and I were watching yesterday a, a programme uh, about the Greeks. And the Greeks had this very clear idea of the Greeks and the barbarians. If you weren't Greek, you were a barbarian. And they meant it in the sense that we think of it. You know, you were uncivilised, you were beyond the pale. If you weren't Greek, you were nobody. Uh, you, were, you, were, you, know, you were probably dreadful. And they didn't want to know you. And, and the Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, it's a similar idea. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile and you were beyond, you were, you were outside God's plan. Um, think about how the Jews saw the Samaritans. Um, isn't it the same today? We pretend it's not, but it is. Just the whole uh, you know, response to migration. Um, you know, yes, okay, we understand why people respond as they do but but also let's be honest and say that fundamentally um, there's a there's a them and us going on as well and God in Jesus and in the cross challenges that and breaks down all the barriers salvation is for all people Jew Greek slave free male female and there are no barriers anymore and that's radical and it's a challenge to us isn't it in fact all of this is a huge challenge to us as we will see how humble are we? You know, God was humble, and God is God. 
Are we humble? God was compassionate. Are we compassionate or are we just nice to the people we like? Um, God died for all. How do we view people who are not quite like us? There are huge, huge challenges in this uh, for us. And I've been reading um, <clears throat> this book, courtesy of uh, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. A Wind in the House of Islam. And I have finished it, so I'll give it you back today. But it's really, really encouraging. It's about how God is working in the Islamic world. Now, it does say there are not huge, huge numbers of Muslims proportionately turning to Christ. But there are some fantastic stories in here of, of, of Muslims turning to Christ. And, and in some cases, in, in big numbers. Um, and I was particularly struck by Iran. And I think we know that there are significant numbers of Iranians turning to uh, Jesus at the moment. And, and again, you know, how would we respond if a group of Iranian Christians turned up here and maybe started changing our comfortable little church in ways that we felt a bit awkward about? But, you know, how would we react? You know? Um, well, on one hand, I'm sure we'd all be delighted, you know, that, that these people wanted to join our church. But then when they started changing everything, because, you know, they, they didn't do things quite like us, how would we feel? And it's a huge challenge, isn't it? Um, uh, this, this, whole, um, this whole idea of God's um, humility, God's compassion, and God's dying for all. Um, let's not pretend um, that it's not a, a huge um, challenge to us. Um, let's look at the second appearance of God. So we said that um, and we, we thought about it um, when uh, we thought about the snake. We thought about uh, the fact that uh, we don't see all of God through Jesus. We see significant things. We see important things, but we don't see everything. Um, and we are now waiting for um, a glorious and a different appearance of God. Um, so if we go back to uh, the snake, we can see that the snake is green, we can see um, that the snake, maybe we think we can see that the, the snake doesn't have legs. Um, we can see quite a few things about the snake, but we can't see everything. And we are waiting now for the time when we will see God in full. We will see everything about God. We will see his true glory. And that is what we are waiting for. And I probably at this point should have had a picture of the whole snake. And I'm sorry. But if you go, on, if you go online, you can see a picture of uh, the smooth green snake. It's about uh, one and a half foot long. So it's, it's, it's pretty big. Um, okay. Revelation uh, 5 and verse 12 says this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. The Lamb is Christ on the cross. But Christ, when he is fully revealed, will be powerful and wealthy. Not in the financial sense, obviously, but in the sense that everything is his and under his dominion. And he will be wise and he will be mighty and he will be given honour and he will be glorious 
and he will be blessed by God because of what he has done and who he is. And that's just a small um, vision of what it's going to be like. I was talking to um, uh, Andrew's three boys in, uh, in, in uh, Heroes last week, and we got talking about heaven. And Jacob said, I've always thought heaven sounds a bit boring. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to go there, you know. Um, and I said, well, you know, what, what, what do you think heaven looks like? You know, well, you know, just sort of standing around, you know, singing maybe, you know, saying you wonderful God, you know. It does sound a bit boring, you put it like that, doesn't it? Because we don't have that picture, we only see part of it at the moment. Because when, we try, when we're trying to imagine what it would be like, we're, we're constrained by our human minds and we're constrained by the fact that we can only see part of the snake, if you like. We can only, we've only got that, that partial picture. When, when God appears at the end of time, it will be utterly beyond everything we can imagine at the moment. In Revelation, we have a picture, but it's a picture which is a picture that we, at the moment, can understand. And it only gets us so far. But what do we know? Well, when you look at, when you look at the first appearance of Jesus, you can see how wonderful Jesus is. You know, I, people, you know, people might say, say to me, you know, why are you a Christian? I said, well, the, re- the biggest, the number one reason I'm a Christian is Jesus. And you look at Jesus and you get something of that, of that in the future. So I would say to Jacob, well, go back and study, you know, Jesus more. And you begin to get some sense of what it's going to be like. But it's only some sense. And we can never fully get our heads around it. And, and I think that may be sometimes why we just cannot imagine what it's going to be like. But it's going to be glorious. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Um, and in, um, and in uh, Philippians, uh, Paul writes this. Therefore God has, notice it's already been done, we just can't see it yet because the epiphany hasn't happened, that, appear, that appearing hasn't happened. This has already happened, we just can't see it yet. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it's a little bit like the summer and examination results. We took uh, Daniel yesterday to um, Newcastle uh, for an applicant's day. So he's already applied to Newcastle and it was to go and see whether he wanted to put them uh, first or second choice. Uh, he revealed to us just before we went that he actually decided to put them second choice already. So possibly a bit of a pointless exercise going. But anyway, I enjoyed it. It was a nice day. Um, and it was re- what was, it was really interesting for me as well as a, as a teacher, knowing how it worked. I learned things about how it all works that I didn't know before. I had this view. I thought that the universities got to know the results uh, the day before the students. So students go in on a Thursday to get their exam results. The school gets to know them the day before so that we can sort of prepare you know, for, the, for the tears or the celebrations and know who, you know, who we need to be you know, putting an arm around. We, we plan all that in advance. I thought the universities got it at the same time. They don't. They get it a week in advance. So they have a whole week to plan. Yeah, a week, yeah. I think it's the, he said the previous Friday. So they have from Friday till Thursday to plan. So they know exactly what they're going to do. Um, 
So it, it, it just makes you think. It's a bit of an epiphany, isn't it, on that Thursday when, those, when you open that envelope? Because actually, the exam results have been the results for some time before. And the universities have a week, and the school has a day, and then you know. And it's a little bit like that. All this, all this uh, giving of, to Christ the glory in heaven, it's already happened. We just don't see it yet. We just don't know it yet. And then there will be an epiphany and we will see it. A bit like, um, a bit like uh, your exam results. And I guess a bit, if I'm being honest, a bit, it's a bit like exam results. For some people it's going to be good news and for some people it's not going to be such good news. Notice that it is, as Paul says, uh, it's the appearing um, of glory um, uh, to all. Um, whereas uh, in, whereas the, the appearance of grace was for all there is a difference in the sense that people although God's grace in Jesus was for everybody you can choose to ignore it but in this case it's to all and you can't ignore it to all because uh, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess you won't have any choice and it's a very very different kind of appearance so finally and uh, this will be a little bit quicker um, response you know when you I've been interviewing a lot the last uh, few few weeks I've been interviewing a lot of people for jobs and there's some classic interview questions and answers do you know the one um, I, we don't ask it um, but I know in some interviews they do um, tell us you know tell us about your weaknesses well, you'd probably say, tell us about your strengths and your weaknesses, to be fair. But, but tell us about your weaknesses. That's a totally unfair question, isn't it? You know the classic answers to that. You know, um, well, you know, oh, I'm a perfectionist, you know. Um, or, or um, you know, oh, I work too hard, you know. Those are the classic uh, answers to, you know, what are your weaknesses. Um, so we don't bother to ask it. Cause it's, I don't think it's a very helpful question. Um, but there's another one. Um, and at the end, we do, we do this one. We ask at the end, we say, have you got any questions for us? And I'll, I'll guarantee that nine out of ten candidates will say, tell me about your CPD, your continuing professional development. They'll always ask that, even if we told them lots about it during the day. Why? Why? Well, because, you know, it shows they're key. You know, it shows that they'll come and they'll want to develop themselves. You know, they won't sit on their, you know, their backsides. They're going to come and they're going to, you know, they're going to learn so much when they're with us, you know. So they'll always ask that question, you know. Um, sometimes it's genuine, I'm sure. Um, other times, perhaps not so much. Um, CPD, Continuing Professional Development. What Paul says here is um, that uh, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So um, there's an expectation that as a church we're going to get better and better at living for God, at being God's people. Um, but when, when people do CPD in school, you know, why would they do it? You know, they'd have to have a motivation. Um, they'd have to feel there was a purpose to it. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, you, you track the, the impact of it. Well, it's, it's the same for us, only, you know, much, much more important. Um, what's our motivation? Well, uh, there are two motivations. Um, one is because God 
has died for us. And there's no bigger motivation than that. Of course we want to respond to him. Um, but secondly, um, our motivation, because uh, we're looking forward to a great hope, a great day, and we want to prepare ourselves for it. In Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Uh, that's the good news of salvation, isn't it? Um, so be, we need to live in, in a worthy manner. Uh, worthy of what God's done for us and worthy of where we're going. Um, our purpose. In Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul again writes, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's our purpose. Um, that's the way in which we have to live. Um, and finally, um, our purification. Um, verses 12 and 14 and also uh, Romans 12 verse 2. Uh, a few years ago, um, one of my assistant heads said, every report this school gets from Ofsted, you could summarise in a sentence. And I said, well, you know, what's, what's the sentence? And she said, excuse the language, I know we're in church, but you know, um, I, I need to quote it verbatim because it it's better that way. All right? um, she says, every Ofsted report we get, you can summarise in one sentence, and the sen- sentence is this, you're crap, but you're not as crap as you used to be. <laughs> and you know that's absolutely true except we did have one that just says we just had one a few years ago that said you're crap and that was it but, uh, but most of them <laughs> it's, you're crap but you're not as crap as you used to be um, and, uh, and, the, and in a sense you know so forget the language but in a sense um, that's how we should think about ourselves as Christians um, we're nowhere near God's standard. But we should be able to say, you know what, But we're a bit nearer than we were last week, a bit nearer than we were the month before, a bit nearer than we were last year. That's what we need to be able to say. And, and that is what Paul is saying here. Um, we're waiting for our blessed hope, uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and uh, Saviour Jesus Christ. Well, we can't hope to be at the level that we need to be uh, when we see God in his fullness. But... We should be being trained to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. These appearances, these epiphanies, are all about making the invisible visible. So the challenge to us as a church is, how do we make God, the invisible, visible to other people? How do we live in that time between God's first appearing and his second appearing? in a way that communicates that, the truths of those two appearings to other people. That's the challenge. Amen.